This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. Let's digest vaccinations and what we're hearing from public health and what we're hearing from the province with the help of the Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit, Dr. Chris Mackey. We had a chance to speak with him this morning for a little over 10 minutes, and we outlined the fact that this is not going to be a weekend where it's going to rain and be miserable and feel like last weekend or the weekend or the week before, I suppose, when when it was downright cold, when you said where did i put those gloves and you had to go and find them this is going to be a warm weekend this is going to be a weekend where people think camping and outdoors and they can golf and they can play tennis and they can make use of other outdoor activities so we asked dr Mackey how that has him feeling going into this long weekend well, there's definitely a reason for the the uh, spidey senses to be tingling. A bit nervous about how people are going to take the move to beginning the reopening process. Uh, that said, we've had, you know, people in London and Middlesex have been excellent through all of this pandemic. So I'm I'm staying hopeful that people will avoid those high risk situations, particularly indoor gathering. We cannot gather indoors right now. We will have people, given the number of vaccinations that have been done in Middlesex, London, who have that first vaccination and will be saying, here I go. It's difficult to know what you can do and what you can't do. If you are somebody who's had your first Pfizer or had your first Moderna or had your first AstraZeneca, what can you recommend? Yeah, it really doesn't change what you should be doing right now. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, the first dose is not as effective as two doses. It's, it's very effective, you know, in the range of 90%, but it's not 100% effective. So you're still vulnerable. The other thing is that we still have a pandemic wave in our community. That means that there is a much higher chance that you're going to be interacting with somebody who has COVID than in the past. Those two things combined mean it's not time to change your behaviors just because you and others have been vaccinated does not mean you should be gathering indoors. It's still a, a too great a risk right now. Do we know what would happen to someone who contracted COVID-19 after one vaccination? Can you still get really sick? Yeah, we've, we, I mean, we've had deaths in people who were over 80 uh, who had had two vaccines actually in this area. Now, it's a much lower rate. The vaccination is preventing, preventing you know, 90% or more of those deaths, but we're still having them. And so, you know, every, every outcome is possible, including death. And, uh, and that's why it's so important, even, even once you've had two shots. At this point, we're in the middle of a pandemic wave. In the summer, when we have more people vaccinated and the, the wave has really subsided, the risk level will start to be at that point where it's appropriate to gather indoors again. Now is not that time. We're talking with Dr. Chris Mackey of the Middlesex London Health Unit, Chief Medical Officer of Health. Yesterday, we did have the province laying out a bit of a framework as to how things will work from here. What were your main takeaways from what you heard from the provincial government? The There are lots of great things about this reopening framework. The most uh, helpful Part of it is that it's very much driven in data. We've got to have vaccination rates up as well as disease rates declining. 
And that's great because, you know, on the one hand, it's aligned with the evidence. But on in the other aspect, it also means that there's more incentive for people to get vaccinated. And we really need to get those vaccination rates up so that we have protection across the population and can start to reach vaccination levels that will prevent future waves. One of the things that you brought up yesterday was a way to get people vaccinated, a way to reach people who maybe weren't being reached. We can look in the United States and Ohio is doing a lottery and New Jersey's offering free beer and California's offering a chance at scholarships. When you look around this area, how have you felt about how people have have kind of taken on becoming vaccinated without any of these incentives like beer and lotteries. Yeah, I, I've been incredibly impressed with the uptake we've seen in our community. We did hit the 50% mark for adults on Tuesday of this week. So, you know, more than half of our adults have been vaccinated. We have another 20% of people that are booked to be vaccinated. So I think we're well on our way to hitting 80% uh, by midsummer, maybe fall. And getting over that next hump to, towards 85, 90%, which is where we really want to be, we will have to get people out who otherwise wouldn't come to a mass clinic. And whether that means there are incentives or we're, we're able to present the information in a way that allows them to make an informed decision, or we actually bring vaccine out to people in workplaces or neighborhoods or elsewhere, those are the strategies we'll be looking at over the next few weeks and implementing over the summer. Dr. Mackey, what do you think leads to some hesitancy? Well, I mean, there are so many factors, so many factors where to begin. I mean, the, the, the social media itself has been a major driver of misinformation. And, and it's just so easy for people to, you know, I heard one the other day that uh, someone was circulating a video where, Someone who's vaccinated had magnets sticking to their skin. Obviously, this has nothing to do with the vaccination. There's no side effects about becoming magnetic. If there was, that'd be kind of cool, but <laughs> it just it just isn't accurate, right? So, and, and then social media just spreads those sort of things so quickly. So you've seen people, you know, these havens on social media for, for anti-vaxxers are spreading misinformation. I think that's a big factor. But the reality is that we're not here in Canada, where they are in the States. There are some places in the U.S. where vaccine hesitancy is really rampant. Uh, here, it's it's pretty minimal. If you look at the early childhood vaccines, 95 to 98% of kids get those, like those, those routine childhood immunizations. Uh, we have decent uptake with our flu shots every year. We're not in that place where, you know, half the population is, is hesitant. In, in Canada and in London and Middlesex in particular, we get vaccinated. We're talking with the Chief Medical Officer of Health, Dr. Chris Mackey from the Middlesex London Health Unit. Dr. Mackey, we did have an announcement today about AstraZeneca for those who received their first dose as AstraZeneca. What do we know about what this means for people who are wondering about dose number two? Very exciting to see the announcement today that people will be able to get their second dose of AstraZeneca. This is a good vaccine. It is a safe vaccine. It is not perfect, but it is a really excellent tool in the fight against the pandemic. People who got their first shot of AstraZeneca should get their second dose of AstraZeneca. The key aspect of that is that the side effect of blood clots, which has been associated with AstraZeneca, 
seems to be less common with the second dose. So if you didn't get those kinds of blood clots in your first dose, even less likely that you would get it in your second dose. And, you know, to begin with, that risk is very low. So it's still very important that people get their second dose of AstraZeneca. When we look at how those will be administered, is that something that people who have received AstraZeneca need to go and and book now at a pharmacy, or are we still waiting for that green light? In general, people should be getting their second dose at the same clinic as they got their first dose. If that's not possible, like if you're moving to Quebec, you know, you can set up your second dose somewhere else. But uh, that is certainly preferred. It makes the tracking much easier. Each pharmacy and primary care will have a slightly different process for calling people back in for their second doses. And so you need to check in with your provider and or wait for them to contact you. Okay. Now, some people who received the AstraZeneca vaccine did not get a date as to when they would get their second one. Uh, in terms of, of that information, do we have the, the green light right now for people to start contacting pharmacies, or is that a next week thing? The announcement today is a good step to, to indicate that this will be possible. It's not generally a hurry because we're still looking at three months as the second dose time frame, possibly a bit sooner. But the manufacturer recommendation for AstraZeneca is different than the than Pfizer or Moderna. The manufacturer recommends not to get the vaccine, the second dose, before two months. So they want that delayed second dose in order to get good long-term protection and good antibodies. And so we've got some time for most people to sort this out. Uh, but and, and then in terms of the actual process, Unfortunately, I don't have an easy answer for you. The pharmacy connect, the pharmacy campaign is not directly connected to public health. Each pharmacy seems to be doing things a little bit differently. So you need to check in with the provider that gave you that first AstraZeneca dose. Right. Dr. Chris Mackey joining us, Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. And Dr. Mackey, I guess one last thing with regard to AstraZeneca is studies that are coming out discussing the mixing of vaccines. We've seen one out of Spain this week that said, okay we have one that is continuing to give information out of the uk what if people are thinking well maybe because of what i'm hearing in in these studies maybe i'll hold out and and try and get in the mix and and go through public health and get a pfizer vaccine what do you say to them it seems like that may be a decent option the data is still out i wouldn't rush to that as an option right now if you have the ability to book an AstraZeneca second dose, that's what I would recommend. Dr. Mackey, anything else you think we need to know before we officially head into this holiday weekend? Well, you know, we did open the Nichols Arena vaccination clinic today. It's an unofficial opening. We officially open on Tuesday, May 25th. Uh, that'll be a great new addition to our mass vaccination clinics at the Earl Nichols Arena. And if people still need to book their first doses, we still have some appointments available between June 6th and June 14th. So we hope to see those snapped up as well. Dr. Mackey, thank you for all the work that you and your staff continue to do. Please keep safe throughout the weekend and happy Victoria Day. Thanks so much, Mike. You too. Chris Mackey, Medical Officer of Health with the Middlesex London Health Unit. So some information on what to do. If you've had one vaccine, the kind of the rule is... Treat it like it's a pandemic and don't be thinking, hey, no problem.
Let's talk about the Tragically Hip and what they have been up to. Sadly, they lost their front man and a Canadian icon, Gord Downey, to cancer. And it was a cancer that took him from our world very, very quickly. But the Hip announced just this week that they had decided to put out something new. Here is a tiny bit of a song called Ouch from a new Tragically Hip album called Saskadelphia full of previously unreleased music. That kind of sounds like something that would happen between up to here and road apples, doesn't it? Kind of fit right into that timeline of the tragically hip. Well, let's get a better ear on this. Music journalist Eric Alper joins us on London Live. Eric, how are things? Well, if there is a better way to kick off the long weekend in May with a brand new tragically hip release, I've yet to hear it. (laughs) <laughs> well, I hope I found the right one. That said, Saskadelphia, it said, ouch, and they just have a little snippet of it on their website. So that's coming from the Tragically Hip's own website. So I'm thinking if there's a good place to go looking, that sounds like the place. Yeah, for sure. And and also, you know, the, the entire album is out right now on music streaming services, all six songs, including um, Montreal, which is a live version of a song that they've never really been able to find the the studio version that they did, but it's their tribute to the the Montreal massacre that took place around that time as well. So something for the real diehard fans uh, as of midnight uh, a couple of hours ago. But this is you know this is this is the new direction I think for the tragically hip. You know they're they're not going to be on a reality show looking for a new lead singer. They're not going to be going out on tour with various singers. Um, They are going to be doing one show at the Juno Awards that's happening on June the 6th with Feist in the lead vocal, their longtime friend, um, because they were getting the Humanitarian Award. But, you know, I think this is really cool. I think even for for those lifelong fans of the Tragically Hip, this is their opportunity to hear songs that they even have probably never heard before because the band didn't even realize that these songs existed until fairly recently. So they would have written the songs, somehow would have recorded them, but didn't really realize that they had stuck around? Is that what we're looking at? Is that where this material comes from? Yeah, these come for the sessions from Road Apples that was released in 1990. And, um, you know, this is a band that was pretty well road tested. They had a lot of shows underneath their belt. And sometimes when you're a band, you go into the studio and you record songs. You record maybe 15 or 20 or even in some cases 200 songs to whittle it down to 10 or 12 that actually make the album. And then those songs that don't make the cut go into a vault. Literally somewhere where, you know, the band can need it as, 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 you know, as they want. But there was a fire that took place during the California fires that centered around Universal Studios. And it was there where Universal Music kept hundreds of thousands, if not millions of songs in their vault. And it was 
the the rumor was along with a lot of other artists the tragically hip master recordings got burned in the fire well actually it turned out not to be true with some little bit of detective work from the group and they realized that these demo versions and these finished songs that never made the cut were literally in a box somewhere. So the band got together and listened to them and picked six of them in order to celebrate not only the humanitarian award that they're going to get at the Junos, but also just give Canadians a nice little teaser of, uh, of more of the band from that era. Music journalist Eric Alper joining us. And Eric, maybe what we have to do is look back to how things existed in the early 90s compared with how things exist now now you would record something it could go up on the cloud somewhere it could be in any uh, number of digital formats you're literally talking about a box of tapes yeah and, and i mean you know road apple sold a million copies in canada physical that's vinyl cassettes and cds now of course you know it's actually quite easy to get anywhere between you know 15 million and 20 million people to listen to one song so the music industry has kind of moved into the song by song by song um popularity and format but back then you know they were doing sold out stadiums across canada a little bit you know bits and pieces of america too um you know they certainly i don't think were valued anywhere near how we see them up here but they did get to play on saturday night live with dan Aykroyd as host dan pushed for them and said you know that he wasn't going to do the show unless he gets to choose the musical act and he chose the tragically hip so during that time between up to here and road apples they were slowly but quickly in a way turning into Canada's biggest band and one of Canada's biggest bands in history. You mentioned the appearance on Saturday Night Live. I think you've told the story before where Gord Downey is looking over and they're starting to play the song Grace 2, which starts with the words, they say, I'm fabulously rich. And he's looking over and he's realizing Dan Aykroyd is just introducing the band and, and it blew his mind and it came time to sing and instead of singing they're fabulously rich he kind of drew a blank and and sang they say we're tragically hip and it, and it sounded <laughs> planned i mean what a what a wild story what a wild way to introduce yourselves to america right i mean that was so gorgeous. that was his way of of even in concert when he would be doing songs that he performed hundreds of times making them relevant he would go off on on long beautiful amazing tangents in um you know blow it high dough or or new orleans is sinking and talk about you know the whale story which a lot of people have heard that version it's like a 20 minute version but he'll also drop in politics he'll drop in what was going on in the city right there he'll talk about our country in a way that nobody else could. You know, this band was probably the greatest band to come out of the country that was able to hold up a mirror to who we were as people. And all these little drops and changes in their songs were the little bit of a wink and a nod that Gord and the rest of the band did to us, the audience, saying, we're like you. We know exactly kind of who you are because we were... We're a couple of guys from Kingston, Ontario, that still like to walk down the street and 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 have fun. So that was a really great moment for the country when they got on SNL. 
We're talking with music journalist Eric Alpern. We're talking about the Tragically Hip and an album of unreleased music that is from some of the Road Apples sessions. It's called Saskadelphia. You can find it on streaming services, and it's perfect for a long weekend. Sit in your own backyard. That's that's important. <laughs> Sit in your own backyard. But, Eric, you talk about the United States, and everybody in Canada who really became enamored with the Tragically Hip would say, yeah, this band is going to blow up in the U.S. US, and then you'd meet somebody who, say, lived in Windsor in the early 90s. They had no idea who the Tragically Hip were because all of their music was coming from Detroit at that point, and yeah. Detroit wasn't playing the Tragically Hip. Was it that Canadiana aspect of lyrics and music that maybe kept them from blowing up in the United States? Is, is there anything else you could point to? Yeah, I, I think, you know, the only other similar story that I can tell that you know, a band, I mean, even the band, the band with, with Robbie Robertson, uh, even they just weren't so Canadian. I mean, they, they brought in certainly a lot of the Canadian elements of folk and roots and country music that they brought in. But, you know, with the help of Bob Dylan, uh, when the band were the backing band, they were, they put together one of the greatest debut albums in music history, bringing Americana back to their own people. When you have, when you have a Canadian band singing about Bob Cajun, or, um, you know, poets or things that were going on in politics. It's really tough, I think, for somebody in Texas or California or Ohio to kind of get a sense for why this band is so great like that, even though that Americans certainly don't have the problem with American lines or quotes or American um, influences in their own music. But I, I, I think it just came down to, you know, look, without making your eyes roll to the back of your head, you really need champions in order to start breaking new countries. You know, you're a Canadian band. You want to break America. You better have the record label and your booking agent and your management and everybody on full wheels go because your competition at that time were Jane's Addiction and Nine Inch Nails and Pearl Jam and Nirvana and Bruce Springsteen and Madonna and everybody else that's going and selling 25 million copies. Why do they need to care about the Tragically Hip? They already have REM. You know what I mean? So there, there's a little bit of, of snarkiness, I think, that some countries have when it comes to other artists coming in from other countries. Um, but you, you have to work really, really hard. And although that the band did, and they had their pockets. They were selling out in, in, um, in you know, obviously Buffalo, New York, or Cincinnati, or places in, in Los Angeles. But I think for the most part, though, it's really hard to break America. It was every band's dream for the last 70 years to break that country and few do it eric albert joining us music journalist as we talk about the tragically hip releasing saskadelphia it's an album it's not a big long one but it's some previously unreleased recordings from road apples eric as a final note in this conversation how about releasing posthumously it's something that we've seen nirvana do it's something that we have seen from other artists what do you think of, of that kind of thing happening? Because a lot of times these were songs that, for whatever reason, did not make an album. They weren't supposed to be released. They never made the cut. Yeah, you know, sometimes back then, even though that you've got 70 minutes worth of music space back on a CD, you there were a lot of bands and artists that tried to fill that space with 16 to 20 songs, and only four of them were really good. Um, the Tragically Hip were never like that. They only wanted to put their best songs on there. I think it's okay that the Tragically Hip does something like this because you know that in looking at the band, they've done things with such care, 
with such honesty, with such enthusiasm and authenticity that, you know, they're not going to put out a dodgy compilation. The rest of the band are still overseeing the day-to-day operations of the Tragically Hip. They still had a lot of say in what songs and where went into Saskadelphia. I think it's different when it's a solo artist and that artist has passed away. Prince has over 150 full albums in already produced in the vault. That's where I would get a little bit like, mm, would Prince really want this? But then if I'm a fan of a band, I would want everything possible. So I can go either way on it. But when it comes to the hip, though, you know that they've got the stamp of approval fully and completely. Yeah, it brings back those days when you could find B-sides or, or old yeah. bootlegs that bands had turned into albums and things like that, those gems that you could find that you never knew existed, that weren't out there, and all of a sudden you get your hands on that and you think, Here, here's a whole new song from this band, or here's a whole new collection of songs from this band. And now it seems we just got, we have everything at the touch of a, a button, the touch of a fingertip. This is kind of neat that, that this takes us back to those days. Oh, there was a whole cottage industry of the bootlegs. You know, the Grateful Dead built their whole career on it. Um, you know, but but yeah, you know, the fact that they called this release Saskadelphia just shows you exactly where they where the care is because they could have called it, you know, the tragically hip, you know, greatest hit that never was for a worldwide market. But you think anybody in America is even going to understand, you know, where Sask? comes from no they're not and that's okay because it's really for us it's really for those hardcore fans that know where the band comes from their roots and they're still strong and they're gonna actually get a chuckle where it's like oh that's really good that's a really good title even though that back then the record label said you can't call the album that because nobody in america is gonna understand it so they ended up calling it road apples Interesting. Well, Eric, hey, thank you for all the gems you always bring to every conversation. Enjoy laying back in a lawn chair this weekend in your backyard and listening to Saskadelphia. Absolutely. Thanks so much for having me. Always a great talking to you. We'll talk soon. We'll talk soon. That is Eric Alper, music journalist on Saskadelphia, which is some old Road Apples recordings by the Tragically Hip, which were thought to have been destroyed by a fire in California. The band found out. No, they might still exist. They found them, and now they've taken just a handful of them, and they have put them on an album, and it's it's out there. The Toronto can wait a minute. Toronto Maple Leafs, yeah, that's what it is. Toronto Maple Leafs and the Montreal Canadiens rivalry goes back an awfully long way very very far into the past further than last night further than 42 years ago the last time they met in the postseason further than 1967 when the Leafs last won their Stanley Cup please welcome sports historian and writer Eric Zweig to London Live Eric how are things oh things are good it's a beautiful day it's a long weekend I could have used a Leaf win last night but I'll (laughs) choose to believe they can still beat them (laughs) 
You know what? Austin Matthews gets eight shots. Mitch Marner gets five shots. Some of those have to go in at some point. Montreal turns the puck over around their blue line an awful lot. That'll create some goals for the Leafs at some point in this series. But this week, you decided to go way, way back on Eric's website, and you can find that ericzweig.com. So Eric and Zweig is Z-W-E-I-G.com. You've got newspaper clippings that even say Toronto's are NHL champions. You've got to go back a long way to find something like that. Where do you like to go to to see, okay, Toronto versus Montreal in hockey? This is a good spot to look at. Well, that story was right back to the beginning, right? The first season in the NHL, 1917-18. They're the only two current NHL teams that date all the way back. I mean, Ottawa was there then too, but it's, there were a lot of years in between where there were no Ottawa senators. Um, that story was just a bit of a, a goof. Cause you know, I'm, I'm the history guy. So let's go right back to the beginning. But for me, where the leaf Canadian rivalry really starts. And it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, cause people are going back a lot to 78 and 79 in the series they played then. And, you know, the Canadians of that era will tell you, you know, we knew there was something special with Toronto, but our big rival was Boston. And really, since then, I think for Canadians fans, Boston is the bigger rival. For Montreal as a city, I think they hate Toronto as a city. I don't think they hate Boston as a city. But So the Leafs-Canadians rivalry from the Montreal standpoint has become more about that than about hockey. Um, but for me, you know, in the 20s and 30s, when the NHL was in its early days, Montreal and Toronto both had bigger, bigger rivalries with Ottawa then. Ottawa was, was the best team in the 1920s. And then when, after the Montreal Maroons, which were the second team in Montreal in the 20s and 30s, both the Canadians and the Maple Leafs had bigger rivalries with the Maroons than they had with each other. So it's not till really we're down to just the what we now call the original six teams by 1942. And then it's interesting that it becomes, and this is, I guess, a little bit part of what the, you know, Montreal hates Toronto as a city. It's all those cultural differences, right? Like the French and English is part of it. The fact that Montreal used to be sort of the business center of the country and Toronto is that now, but Montrealers even then felt Toronto was kind of joyless and, and, you know, the bars closed too early and all of that stuff. So in, in the 1940s, you know, Con Smythe is the owner of the Maple Leafs then. He leaves the Leafs to fight in the war, which he had, he had been a soldier in the first world war. And he, he's now quite an old man by 1942, but he's, he's serving in the Canadian army again for world war two and Toronto, the Maple Leafs had a lot of players serve and the Canadian, you know, there was the whole French English conscription crisis issue. You know, English Canadians thought French Canadians weren't committed to Britain and the war the way English Canadians were. And that's probably true. Uh, the Canadians did have a lot of players who got, deferments and, and, you know, wartime work that could allow them to still play hockey. I mean, Maurice Richard actually tried to enlist in the Army and was, was turned down because he'd broken so many bones as a hockey player. Um, but it's, it's during the, the, the years in 44, 45, 46, the Canadians win the Cup in 44 and 46. The Leafs win the Cup, or in, yeah, and the Leafs win the Cup in 45. But Smythe is, like, angry at French Canada and the Leafs are angry at Montreal because of war issues. And then sort of after the war in 46, um, Frank Selke, who is, is sort of Smythe's right-hand man in Toronto and has been running the team in his absence, he trades 
a player Smythe liked, I think it was Frank Edels, who's not a name that people know, for, for Teeter Kennedy, who Smythe would later acknowledge was his favorite player in Leafs history. But Smythe was angry this trade was made without his say-so. He more or less forces Selkie out after the 46th season. 46, Selkie takes over the Canadians. And now suddenly this man who had built the farm systems in Toronto builds these brilliant farm systems in Montreal that lead to those post-war dynasties, the five in a row in, in the 50s, the, the four cups in five years in the 60s, and even you know the holdovers that into the Canadians' dynasties in the 70s. And the Leafs, who I think people didn't realize how important Selkie was to their history, you know, the, the Leafs win all those cups in the late 40s and the early 50s until 51, uh, basically around young players that, that Selkie had brought into the system. And then, so of course, you know, there's the, the famous series in 51 where the Leafs win the cup, all five games go into overtime, but the Leafs were really dominating in that series. And this is the series where Bill Barilko scores the winning goal and, and is killed in the plane crash that summer and the Leafs don't win the cup again until 62 and that is when the, the remains of 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 Brilco and the plane crash are finally found but the real you know like the, the real start of the Leafs rivalry the way at least Torontonians think of it and and during those glory days in the 50s and 60s really starts in 47 when Smythe has let Selkie go he's built the Canadians into a championship team again and the Leafs face the Canadians in the Stanley Cup in 47 as as underdogs and beat them and, and go on to win three cups in a row. And, and that's one of the real great Leaf dynasty eras, the, the 47, 48, 49, and 51, four cups in five years. And that's, that, to me, is where the dynasty really, really starts, even though the two teams go back right to the beginning of the NHL and had faced each other in the playoffs a handful of times in, in the very first season. That was a story I wrote yesterday and again in 1925. But the rivalry really you know, like the, the, the kindling is sort of lit during the war years, and then, boom, it explodes in, in 47. Sports historian Eric Zweig joining us, <laughs> author of the Toronto Maple Leafs, The Complete Oral History, author of Fever Season, author of Hockey Night in the Dominion of Canada. And we are talking Toronto and Montreal. A lot of times rivalries are made on the ice. You've just outlined how intricately this rivalry is created with things that have happened off the ice. Yeah, well, for sure, right? I mean, even Montrealists to this day think of Toronto as boring and stayed and the bars closed too early and they roll up the sidewalk. <laughs> I mean, I mean I, I'm from Toronto. I, when I go to Montreal, I kind of look at Toronto that way too. And, and as I said, like, I think that Montrealers actually hate the city of Toronto more than they hate the Maple Leafs. They hate the Bruins as a hockey team, but I don't think they hate Boston. Whereas in Toronto, it's all part and parcel, you know. <laughs> Eric, in covering the Leafs game. as you have, what do you think a long run this year, if they can pull it off, and I know that it's one nothing Montreal in the series right now, but if the Leafs could pull off a long run, if they could be the team to come out of the North and make it to essentially the semifinals, or who knows, maybe even make it to the Stanley Cup final, what would that be like in your mind? I, well, you know, it's the funniest thing, right? Like, there's all the asterisks of, of the pandemic. You know, like, I'm not one to put a lot of, though, who knows, right? Like, the fact that they only played the one division. I mean, there's been strike seasons in the past when Chicago won the Cup in 2013. That was a short season. They only played regular season games in their conference. And I don't think anybody looks back at that as, as a cheap Cup win. But the fact that 
people won't be able to celebrate it in the same way. I mean, you know, Doug Ford is now talking about the ways we're going to open up, but there's not going to be the crowds in the bars, the crowds in the streets. Maybe if they go all the way to the Cup in July. It's hard to believe talking about the Stanley Cup in July. But, I mean, but still, like, Leaf fans have been just longing for this for such a long time. I mean, as I said in the story yesterday, I was alive in 67, but I'm not old enough to remember it those 70s teams that were really good and really exciting, but no match for the Canadians. Those are the teams of my youth. And it's amazing for me to think about how close to 67 that actually is and how far from now it is. So, you know, I mean, Toronto fans have been waiting an awfully long time for this. It's not quite like the Cubs in the World Series, but it's, you know, it's on a par. And, and you know, normally you'd say, and it's funny, like the Blue Jays celebrations, the Raptors celebrations, there was a teeny bit of violence with the Raptors celebrations, but they've been just such such explosions of sports love. I like to think that in Toronto in normal circumstances, when they win the Stanley Cup, if they win the Stanley Cup, it would be this huge just like, outpouring of love in a way, you know, like these millions of people in the streets just having a good time. And it's, it'd, be, it'd be disappointing if, if they finally win and we can't do that. But, uh, you know, it's a strange time we're living in. Absolutely. Well, Eric, thank you so much. It's always great talking sports history with you. Please keep safe and enjoy the games that are coming up this weekend. Yeah, you too. Thanks a lot. That is Eric Zwag, sports historian and writer, author of the Toronto Maple Leafs, The Complete Oral History and Hockey Night in the Dominion of Canada, Art Ross, the hockey legend who built the Bruins. So Eric goes beyond the Maple Leafs, but has that soft spot as well in there for those Leafs. You've been listening to the London Live Podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.